last week, I talked to you about God's rescue plan and how Luke presents that rescue plan. We looked at a few um, examples where the fearful, the marginalized, or the outcasts. Um, you know what? I don't have the slide advancer. Sorry. Um, and, and the outsiders were all invited as part of um, the rescue plan. Today, we're going to look at two of my most favoritest stories in, in Luke. Um, we'll start in Luke 8, if you want to find that. Um, but have you ever noticed, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Have you ever noticed how suffering and illness affects everybody? And it really doesn't matter if you're destitute or rich poor or whatever. In a hospital waiting room, if you can remember that situation, you're all on one level. You're all there because you want health and restoration, wholeness. Doesn't matter what your class is or what your status in life is. You're all on a level ground. Oh, thank you. Um, health and wholeness are wanted by everyone. So Luke, eight continues this rescue plan story and we find that starting in verse 22 uh, Luke leads us through a crescendo of Jesus authority first over nature you remember he was in the boat he was tired trying to get to the other side of the lake because he had had so much pressing on him and nature wasn't being very nice to him it was rocking the boat and he pretty much set up sat up and said, can't you see I'm trying to take a nap? Be quiet. Your creator here needs some rest. And of course, nature obeyed. So he lands on the other side of the lake, and he is immediately met by evil powers, the demon-possessed men, out of him, into the swine. So Jesus has been in this unclean territory around um, evil powers, and he comes back to the land of Judah, and here is where we're going to pick up our story. I think it starts about verse 40. He's met by a man who has a problem. And Luke's going to continue his protocol, remember, of a man and woman back-to-back -back stories. Well, we're first going to look at this important man. Um, he's in need of healing. He's no ordinary Jew, though. No, sir. This guy's important. He's respectable and very reputable. So we're given his name right away. We're talking about Jairus. He is the ruler in the synagogue, which kind of lets us know that there's one synagogue in this town, and he is head of it. So move over. Get out of the way. We got a respectable man approaching here. On this particular day, though, he's in desperate need. His daughter is dying, and protocol flies out the window. He comes to Jesus and fell at Jesus' feet, makes his request that Jesus go with him. It's got to be a really strange sight, this respectable man here at Jesus' feet. All protocol has gone out the window. The core value of this society doesn't matter to this man at this point. All he wants 
is someone to help his daughter. There's no harshman, harshness or judgment. So verse 42 enlightens us a little bit about the man's daughter. He, she was an only daughter, probably an only child. Um, she's 12 years old, and she is dying. But as Jesus went, the crowd thronged him. Okay, let's notice these important details. Um, because even though this is a female, this desperate father wants healing for a 12-year-old who is dying. So hurry up, Jesus. Let's get there. We, we don't have much time left. Enter interruption number one. And of all things, it's a woman. No names given her. So we know that she has very little importance in this society. And Luke, instead of finishing his story about Jairus, goes on to tell a story about this destitute woman. Um, it seems that that was kind of a common thing in that era, in that first century. Um, and Luke uses it semi-often. And we refer to it as an intercalculation, which basically means this first story and this next story have a lot of things in common, and we want you to learn something from both that are similar. All right, so as we go, we want to look at some of those things that are similar. What do they have in common about God's rescue plan? There are a few striking parallels, so let's find out about the woman. She had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had spent all she had on physicians and could not be healed by anyone. 12 years. She's been sick as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. She was excluded from society and definitely had no right to the blessings of God. She's completely de destitute with this devastating disease that has made her ritually unclean. But worse, worse of all, she's spended everything on trying to recover and now she's helpless, impoverished, and brings her into more commonalities with Jarius' daughter. You see, both women, um, ooh, didn't know that was so dark, sorry. Both women, both are dying, both are in desperate circumstances, and they have 12 years invested into this. Now here I'd like to just give you a little bit of free information, you probably know this, but a woman in the Bible is symbolically usually ref referring to a church. And the number 12 has a lot of significance in Scripture as a symbol for God's church and completeness, his authority. So as we continue looking at these stories, remember that this woman who has come to seek Jesus has to take action on her own. She's all alone. She has no one to speak for. She's not the daughter that has... Jarius as her daddy. So she has to take out some kind of action to help herself. Pulls out all the stops. I don't care about society's rules. I don't care what's, rit what's ritually right. She's going to do the unthinkable. So this desperate, destitute women, woman excuse me, came up behind Jesus and she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately the bleeding stopped. What? She did what? 
to touch. He's not allowed to be touched. What does she think she's doing? And it seems Jesus wants to know who touched me. <laughs> Jesus, there are hundreds of people traveling down this road with you. Everyone is touching you. And Peter wants to make sure he knows that. Seems this touching thing is kind of an important one in these two stories. Um, so after everyone is denied touching him, Jesus says, yeah, but somebody deliberately touched me because I felt healing power go out of me. When the woman realized that she had been noticed and could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell on her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been completely healed. So why does Jesus ask who touched me? Why can't he just let this poor woman, who's already embarrassed by the, the terrible disease she's had for so long, why does he have to embarrass her like this? Or is it an embarrassment? Do you see that she too fell on her knees the same way Jairus did? Both in the same position, destitute woman, rich man. Didn't matter, they both needed healing. Um, Jesus realizes, though, she needs more than physical healing. She needs to know that she is noticed. And even though she comes trembling, afraid that Jesus is going to condemn her, similar to what all the doctors and religious leaders of her day had done, um, she comes to Jesus and is noticed. She's not going to navigate crowds anymore and nobody notice her. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Did you catch that? Did you see what Jesus said? You may not be looking at the same thing I am. Daughter. This is the one and the only time in the Gospels that Jesus references someone as daughter. Daughter, don't think that because I'm on my way to heal Jairus' daughter that I don't have time for my own daughter. You, my dear child, are my beloved daughter. She has a new identity. She is noticed. She's got dignity now. She's no longer destitute. She is a king's daughter. At that moment, Jesus reinstates her into society. She's noticed, love, and whole. She is the king's daughter. Jesus isn't embarrassing her. He's reinstating her into society, giving her new dignity. Um, and he then had told her to go in peace. So now, she's got a daddy too, just like Jarius' daughter. So another commonality. Her daddy has told her she can go in peace. But now we've got to finish this story about Jarius. Remember, we're kind of in the middle. What happens with Jarius' daughter? Someone comes from his house and says, Jarius, I'm sorry, too late. Your daughter died. 
No need to tremble or trouble the healer anymore. And what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. In other words, if you've got the same faith that my daughter had, your daughter will be well too. There's plenty of this wellness to go around in Jesus' kingdom. Believe not because of the absence of trouble, but because of the presence of Jesus. So, the journey to Jairus' house continues, and Jesus finally arrives there. He goes into the house with three of his disciples and tells all of the people out there waiting, this is just a temporary situation. Um, even though they laugh at him and don't believe him. Jesus goes in and does the unthinkable. Jesus took her by the hand. In other words, he touched her. She's dead. That's a corpse, Jesus. That is untouchable. Now Jesus is ritually unclean. Doesn't seem that this touching thing is as important to Jesus as it is to everybody else. Jesus took her by the hand and in a loud uh, voice said, My child, get up. And that that moment her life returned and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told him to give her something to eat. Apparently this eating thing in that culture was very important because it reinstates her into kinship. She is once again Jarius' little daughter or little girl. I don't know how well you can see it, but I'd like you to notice who I think is John. See how wide-eyed he is there? I, I, I like this picture because of that. John is like, did you see what, they what he just did? I, I can just imagine John saying that. Remember that. But the reason that I like this story, or these two stories, so much is the symbolism that's there. Jesus came to this world to establish his new church, symbolized by the sick and dying young woman, Jairus' daughter. And he's on his way to bring her back, bring her life, bring his church life. But along the way, he's interrupted by his old and dying church who has been hemorrhaging for years under religious leaders and sacrificing. And Jesus brought her healing and new life. I just love it. He, he, he's establishing his new church, but ain't forgetting the old one. Bringing them along too. I just love the imagery that I, I see in my mind of our great and awesome God in that picture. And then that guy, John, that was so astonished that, did you see what Jesus did? Writes this not long after. See how very much our Father loves us? For he calls us his children. And that is what we are. It was a very impressive moment, I think, for John. So, now we're adding that this rescue plan story is also for the destitute and the rich. Although most people then imagined the rich were entitled anyway. So I want to look at my second favorite story. How about the undeserving? Are they included in this rescue plan picture that we're painting in these last few weeks? I don't think so. 
after all, undeserving means you're not entitled to it, or there's no salvation possible, right? Let's find out. Have you ever tried to cut your own hair? <laughs> I see some of you have. You know the situation, and probably you were a child, but you, and wanting to save mom and dad a few bucks, you know, so I can cut my own hair. I remember I used to cut my girls' hair when they were small. Come to think of it, that's probably why I now have a daughter who's a hairdresser. She got tired of mom making a mess of her hair. But at any rate, you, you know the story. You're, you're cutting your hair, getting it where you like it. Oops, this side doesn't quite match. Um, oh, I don't have the back. And on and on you go. It's known in, in psychology as escalation of commitment. You start a project, it's not quite right, but you can't stop because you got to fix it. So your fixing creates a bigger mess than if you'd have just left it alone. Um, you keep trying to fix it, it just gets worse and worse. Trying to clean up this mess you've made only makes more devastation until you get to the point where you throw up your hands and say, I need an expert to fix this, and you're ended up with a, a shorter haircut than I've got, very little hair left, and ruined pride. Sometimes our mistakes are a lot bigger than just a haircut. We think we've gone beyond the point of no return. We've rejected help, and we find ourselves in a situation that we never thought we'd be in. You know you don't deserve any compassion or help, especially not any restoration. Should we go back to God? Can he still save us? Or more important, will he? I want to look at the famous chapter, Luke 15, the great finding chapter of the Bible. You probably remember it, there's three parables that Jesus tells after he's or in response to the Pharisees accusing him of receiving sinners and eating with them. Oh, seems that this was a terrible thing in their mind. Jesus has been welcoming tax collectors, and the Pharisees and scribes start grumbling. The issue is, sinners can't be saved. Why are you eating with them? Why are you wasting your time? They're not part of the righteous, right? Well, We've already seen that Jesus disregards this rule because we've already talked about stories where he's welcoming the fearful, the marginalized, outsiders, destitute. Now the question is, will he welcome undeserving as well? He tells this story of three, tells three stories, three parables. The first story is about that rogue sheep who gets himself lost He's one of a hundred. He's found, and a great celebration. And then a woman in the second story is a woman who loses one coin, and this coin is one of ten. She finds it, and there's a great celebration. So you see the stories are escalating in value, going from sheep to a gold coin. They're found, and there's a celebration. What about the third story? 
This story is about the undeserving son who deliberately made a mess of his own hair. He's not one of a hundred or one of ten. He's one of two. Luke goes on with his story in, ver in um, verse 11. A man had two sons. The younger one said, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. So the father divided his wealth between them. Well, this son has a lot of nerve. In essence, he's basically saying, hurry up and die. I want my money. Or, I want you dead, quite frankly. And the father, who knows that there is no love without freedom, divides his wealth between his two sons. They both get their share, and off goes this son to a faraway country. That leads to a crescendo of infamy. You remember the story. He wastes his money. He squanders away his life um, as he continues to cut his hair, getting deeper and deeper into a situation that there's no recovery from. He's in a no-fix situation. He's invested too much time going in the wrong direction, all while trying to fix himself, and he's down to just a few inches of hair left when a severe famine hit the land, and he finds he has to hire himself out to feed swine. Unthinkable job for, the, for a Jew. What's he going to do? It seems that this is the time when his memory returns. He's in a situation where he can be quiet for a minute, and his memory returns. He knows he doesn't deserve his father's love. He knows also that his father probably has a lot of openings at his place. There's probably a few jobs there. Maybe, maybe he can convince his father to let him back in as a hired servant. You know, at least they get to eat a lot better than he does. He's sitting here in the, with the pigs. He's starving. He would love to eat what they're eating. Most likely he does. So, verse 20 tells us that he returns to his father. First he says, he came to his senses and said, I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned both against you and heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just take me back as one of your hired men. He's got a plan. He needs a job, and his father has openings. And maybe just enough compassion that he'll let him back in as a hired servant, even though he's an undeserving child. So he returns. And now the story shifts. And while everybody knows this story as this parable of the prodigal son, I'm going to call it the parable of the loving and compassionate father because that's where our focus should be. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, had compassion on him, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Are you kidding me? 
This undeserving son has embarrassed the father beyond belief. He knows he doesn't deserve any welcome, and that's when he starts his rehearsed speech. But his words are muffled on his father's embrace, and he can't even finish it. His son said, Father, I have sinned against both you, both heaven and you, and no longer worthy to be called your son. Stops right there. Father doesn't let him get any further. He's said he's sorry, he's admitted he'd had a problem, and the father stops it. And be ready for another surprise. Imagine in your, in your mind this father, very wealthy, very respected man, running down the road with his robe pulled up, um, embracing his son, kissing this guy who, by the way, is really dirty. And he stinks. But this powerful man is going to give some orders. Quick, bring the finest robe in the house. And get the ring on his finger and sandals for his feet. Why is this so important? These are three acts of, of symbolic restoration. What is the finest robe in the house? It naturally belongs to the father. The father is putting his own robe on this undeserving son and immediately covers the son's shamefulness. A ring, most likely the signet ring or family ring, reinstates him as a member of the family. He is not going to be a hired servant. He is coming back as a son. And sandals? Sandals aren't given to hired servants. They're only given to sons. All these ordered items are making a statement very loud and clear that restoration is progressing. There's no second-class children in the kingdom of God. But just in case you have a doubt, just in case there's a few doubts in your mind, the father continues with orders. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. No other reason to celebrate than he is found. Um, you see, there's never an ex-child. I've heard of ex-wives, ex-bosses, ex-husbands, ex-friends, but never, ever is there an ex-child. You never have referred to your child or anybody's child as an ex. They always have that status. You got to look at the oops of the story before we go on. Remember that oops when the grumbly older brother makes an entrance? Remember at the beginning of this, the grumbly Pharisees and scribes? He eats with sinners. Grumble, grumble, grumble. But did you notice the best part? Even grumbly older brothers are invited to this special celebration and feast. Not just undeserving sons, but grumbly older brothers also. That's the overwhelming good news about Jesus. However, that's a parable. That doesn't happen in real life, does it? 
Really? You think so? I want to tell you a story about a real prodigal son. And so did Luke. He's going to tell you about it in Luke 23. If you want to go with me there, I'm going to pick up the story about verse 32. Jesus is going, is, is at the cross, and he is dying on the cross. Luke tells us there's two others there, both criminals. They were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place of the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified. One on his right and one on his left. Signifying, of course, that Jesus was the worst criminal. He's crucified in the center. We're not given their names. We have no clue who they really are. But the Greek uses the word, and I'm going to butcher this, kakergos. Anyway, it means evil worker. They have squandered their life away and are now getting what they deserve. But what does Jesus say? First words from Jesus' mouth hanging on the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And these words make a huge impact on these evil workers. Well, at least one of them. And verse 35 goes on to tell us about how the crowds and the leaders are mocking Jesus. The crowds watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one, let him save himself. Adds too that the soldiers mocked him as well. Finally, the Romans and the Jews have something to agree on. Jesus is dying the death of a traitor and the charge against him is king of the Jews. The irony of all of that is he really was the king of the Jews, the Messiah who accomplished the divine purpose of coming for God's children. And it is true. Jesus could not save himself from the cross and still save me. One or the other, Jesus chose me. And no one there at that setting or at the cross recognized that except one. Even one of the evil workers is mocking Jesus and saying loud voices against him and saying, yes, save us too with you. But this one who recognized Jesus for who he was says, do you not fear God? We suffer justly for our evil deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now catch this, this prodigal son says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What are you talking about, prodigal undeserving son? You've squandered your life away and you want Jesus to remember you? On what basis? Should Jesus remember you? Let's look at what he said. Not sure if you can see this. I thought it would stand out better, but this undeserving man calls Christ by name. Doesn't call him rabbi. Doesn't call him Messiah. He says, 
Jesus. The important thing about Jesus is Jesus means Yahweh saves. This undeserving prodigal son recognized Jesus as Yahweh who saves. Remember me. That's a nice thing. Remember me. When you leave today, remember me. I've been standing up here. No, no. Remember me in Jewish scriptures was typifying a request as, G as Yahweh remembering with a blessing on behalf of his people of the covenant. So this request isn't asking for nice, cheery thoughts about this person that, that you don't want to forget. But it's about Jesus acting on his behalf. So it seems this undeserving child understands more than those religious leaders standing around. This is Yahweh. Please act on my behalf. But the most important part of his request is when you come into your kingdom. This criminal knew the cross was not the end of Jesus. He understood more than even the disciples grasped. Christ's suffering was consistent with his kingship, not contrary to it. Perhaps he understood the meaning of the charge that was against Jesus as being um, the king of the Jews and that it actually did fulfill prophecy. He really was the king of the Jews. And there's no mocking of him by this evildoer. So why should Jesus listen to him? It's caused enough shame, enough problems. Best to not respond to him, right? Besides, evildoers do not deserve good promises, do they? Probably not, unless that evil worker is your undeserving son and you are his compassionate father. Makes all the difference. So Jesus does respond, and what does he say? Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, what's interesting and what I like is when you translate what that says into the literal Greek, it says, truly to you I say today, with me, you will be in paradise. Why is it more important to me to read it, the literal Greek translation? Truly, amen, the true statement. I say to you, I am the source of this word and you, my undeserving child, are the recipient. I'm saying this truly to you today. Don't wonder if, but no, because I'm telling you this right now, this is a definite, you will be. There are no maybes about this. There's no, well, let me think about it a little bit and decide. Nope. That very day, this child has assurance of spending eternity with Jesus. And in paradise, paradise, especially in that first century and in a J Jewish thinking was a reference to Eden and to the tree of life. So this evil worker has asked that he remember him 
and Jesus is promising him paradise. You will be with me in the renewed Eden. You will be with me at the tree of life. And why? The best part. You remember how um, in first century and particularly Jewish culture put the central theme in the middle? When you're reading in scripture, the a chapter usually has a central theme in the middle of it or a sentence in the middle of it. In this, in the literal Greek translation, with me is in the center because it's the central theme. Jesus is saying that all of this is possible because just one reason, you will be with me in paradise is possible because you're with me. Some time ago I read a story about a preacher who was traveling the Middle East and um, he went there with a very important high official digni uh, dignitary. Um, and as he's traveling, the entourage arrived at the country that he was supposed to come. And of course, this high official, government official, had to have tight security. So the preacher found that as they were traveling, he somehow got pushed back and was not in that circle with this dignitary. And he was losing ground, tried desperately to say, look, I'm, I'm supposed to be a part of that group. Let me in. He, he kept falling further and further behind until all of a sudden the dignitary stopped in his tracks, looked back at him and said, he's with me. Immediately the security guard opened up. He walked in, closed up again, just like the Red Sea. No problem. All because this important government official said, he's with me, and walked in. One day, that undeserving criminal will be walking the streets of gold in paradise. Wait a minute. I'm going to say this a different way. One day, I will be walking the streets of gold. I know there's a lot of you. Thank you for the amen, by the way. I know there's probably a lot of you that are wondering, how in the world did she ever get here? Um, I'm sure that many will think that she doesn't belong there. Well, I can't wait, because Jesus is going to turn around and say, she's with me. Woohoo! I get to do my happy dance. I am there because I am with Jesus. I am the undeserving child, and yet I live with the full assurance of salvation. He has run out to meet me where I am. He's embraced me. He's kissed me. He's clothed me with his robe of righteousness. He's given me the family ring. And I have sandals on my feet. Well, shoes today, but you get the picture. All because I am a child of the king. I've prayed that prodigal prayers, prodigal um, criminal's prayer. Remember me. And I've received this same assurance that he got that day. And you will receive the same response. So let's personalize this. With, remember, Jesus, remember me, your name, when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Truly I say to you, your name, today, with me, you will be in paradise. Yep, salvation is for the undeserving. 
Can you hear the father rejoicing? My child was lost and now is found. He has invited the fearful, the marginalized, the outsider, the destitute, and even the undeserving. They are all invited because of Jesus. Thank you for searching for me, my Father in heaven. Thank you for looking until I was found. Thank you for the gift of the best robe in the house and for this ring to make me a part of your family, for shoes on my feet. I ask that you will walk with me through this life and right on into paradise. We praise you, Father, for these wonderful blessings. We say hallelujah and thank you. Be with us today because of Jesus. Amen.